Welcome to Cinema of Meaning, the podcast from myself, Thomas Flight, and fellow video essayist Tom Vanderlinden from the channel Like Stories of Old that seeks to explore the depths of what cinema has to offer. This week, we're discussing the film Kingdom of Heaven, directed by Ridley Scott. Tom, what made you want to discuss this film? You've seen it, I'm assuming, several times, a bunch of times. I just watched it for the first time last night. So this was kind of your pick. Why did you want to discuss Kingdom of Heaven? Indeed, I've seen it a bunch of times. It's one of my favorite films, and I rewatched it again last night, actually, and it just reaffirmed once more that this might be too bold of a statement, but I think it might just be my favorite Ridley Scott film. Like, I recognize it's not the best, but if you come at me like a random moment someday and you ask me, what, like, which movie do you want to rewatch? It has a good chance it's going to be this one. It's just such a classic, epic adventure. To be clear, though, we are talking about the director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven, the three-hour version, which it's about 45 minutes more than the theatrical cut, which originally released in theaters and didn't do too well. We'll talk about that some more on, as to how and why and how the editing made so much of a difference between the quality of the story. It's like the way that the Blade Runner, the theatrical cut, it was a good movie, but it had the infamous voiceover that took away so much of the magic of that film. And I think Kingdom of Heaven might even make a bigger leap in quality because it didn't just take away some diminishing aspect, but it actually put in so much more of the story that really made it more cohesive, more enjoyable, more immersive. And I think it's one of the best examples of how a movie can be improved through a director's cut or at least in a general re-editing of the same film that didn't do so well at first. And besides that, I think it's a very interesting film on moral philosophy, especially when I first saw it as a teenager. It was really inspiring to me. It was the first time I was really exposed to the kind of uh, the specific type of moral philosophy. We'll also get into that, of course, that Kingdom of Heaven portrays. I thought it was an interesting reflection on the nature of religion and especially like what a certain script or like or a scripture or like a text might say or a religious text and versus what would be really the right course of action in that case. And you saw it for the first time. Yeah, how what were your thoughts? I saw it for the first time and I I guess had the fortune of being able to watch the director's cut first. So I didn't have to sit through what apparently is the much worse original cut. I haven't seen that version, but I watched Daniel Netzel, I think, from Film Radar, has a great video breaking down the differences between the two. And I did watch that. And I was kind of shocked to see what they did cut out because it's like some very essential scenes. It's funny because I did have the feeling watching it of like, oh, wow, this is like a very long movie. And so like I can see why the studio or whoever had the impulse to like cut it down but to see the way in which they went about doing that i can see how it is a much worse version did you see that version first in theaters when it came out uh, yeah i don't remember specifically my thoughts on on it at the time because i think it came out right after like the hype of the lord of the rings yeah and you had a couple of those bigger budget medieval or like sword fighting films you had i think troy came out around that time you had a king arthur film the one with clive owen and i think because 
the theatrical cut of Kingdom of Heaven, it cut out much of the story and it just left most of the action. It felt like it was just like a one of those films, you know, it, it was like right. three stars. It was fine. It was uh, kind of forgettable, had some interesting elements, but overall it wasn't, or at least for me, it didn't make that much of an impression immediately. Though I was drawn to like the whole world of it, like the design, the music, especially and the little bits of the philosophy that were still there also in the beginning. But it wasn't until the, I'm not sure exactly when the director's cut came out. I think it was pretty soon after, because I do remember I gave it a second chance pretty quickly after that. So I've been a big fan and promoter of this film ever since. <laughs> Actually, the first video that I made for my channel was on Kingdom of Heaven. So so this is kind of an origin mm -hmm. Tom Vanderlinden like stories of old exactly. origin story. Actually, we're recording this on March 29th, which is exactly to the day, five years since I uploaded that video. I uploaded that one on March 29th, 2017. Did you know that? Did we plan this or is it, did, did that just end up as a coincidence? It's just coincidental, <laughs> but I, I thought about it earlier today and I was like, oh, that happened. <laughs> That's fun. Well, I'm excited to dig into it. I think it was a movie that on first watch, there's a lot about it that is interesting to me, but there was also uh, a lot of moving pieces and certain things that I didn't know quite what to make of, at least at first glance. And so I'm really interested to discuss it with you and see what those themes mean to you and, and how some of those things come together. But I think it's a thematically, it's a very fascinating movie. I think what it's doing by the third act, we'll have to get into spoilers eventually, but like mm -hmm. what it's doing by the end with the standard kind of hero's journey, I think is really fascinating. And I really liked that. So, and it's just an exploration of moral philosophy and history and religion. And so, yeah, this is going to be a good discussion. So where do you want to start on this? I think when you go on streaming services, at least in my country, there's still, you still often find the theatrical version instead of the director's cut. So it might be interesting to first quickly touch on the differences and why you should really seek out the director's cut instead of the theatrical one. Because for me, the theatrical one is like original Blade Run. It's let it be forgotten. It's bad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because you mentioned the uh, Daniel Netzel video. He included some clips from the behind the scenes discussions on that film from with the actual editor. And what to me was most fascinating, uh, how she talked about how we, they had this three hour movie and they had to cut it down to like two hours and a, a little bit. But because a lot of the action also progressed the plot in some significant way, you couldn't really take out whole chunks of action without leaving plot holes. So instead, yeah. what they opted for was cutting out character content and this sort of leaving character holes, as uh, she called it, like instead of taking away logical elements that would make the film confusing from a plot point of view, they would take out certain character motivations and characterizations that would make the film still like make sense, have it make sense logically, but it wouldn't feel as deep or compelling because you're less connected to the characters. And that's interesting to me that they know that's a sacrifice they were making. I'm not sure if they at the time knew who they were gonna have like a director's cut that was gonna fix it all. But I think there's two major, just to exemplify how much was cut out. In the beginning of the film, they take out like a whole bunch of backstory with regards to Balian. In the theatrical cut, he's just a 
grieving man who gets annoyed by some priest and he murders him and then goes off to uh, find his father who he just met like moments earlier. But in the director's cut, there's like five additional scenes in which it's also revealed that that priest was actually his brother. So there's like a whole relation there that we didn't get in the theatrical cut. And the brother is also portrayed as much more malicious. Like he mutilates the corpse of Balian's dead wife and he lies to Balian. He's sort of you get a much better sense that there's this anger that's building in Balian that at one point just erupts instead of him just having this weird moment where he suddenly bursts out into violence. And in the director's cut also establishes that Balian is someone who doesn't traditionally fight back. Like his brother, the priest, he provokes him at some point and even like laments him for never fighting back, always turning the other cheek. And that's, of course, something that really plays into Balian's characters later on, that he doesn't want to use violence. It's a very key scene. The, the priest like slaps him and says, you see yourself as sinless and that itself is a sin. Um, and then that becomes like a theme later in the movie. They talk about him thinking of himself as this perfect knight. And there's this theme of like seeing himself as sinless. And through that kind of thematic discussion and symbolism, there's like soft illusions of him being this kind of like Christ-like character in some ways. Mm -hmm. So I was amazed to find out that that scene in particular was cut out because it felt so central to like the journey of Balian as a character. Yeah, and so the the second major thing that was cut out was the whole subplot with Sibylla's son and who is also the nephew of the king of Jerusalem, who ascends to the throne after the king of Jerusalem dies. And that also is a significant element of who Sibylla is as a character, because there's some complex political stuff going on. If you've seen the film, you know what I'm talking about. But basically what it comes down to is in the theatrical cut, she's she doesn't have the son, or he is just like cut out altogether. So her decisions at that point really come off more as selfish ones. She's just protecting herself and therefore she sort of reaffirms her wedding with uh, Guy, the villain of the film. Whereas in the director's cut, she's doing everything to in the service of her son. She's not really concerned with herself. She's trying to protect him, which to me is also one of those things like I almost cannot imagine, at least now I cannot imagine the film without that whole plot element. But yeah, I guess they had to cut it out. Shaving out... 45 minutes at least is what you said i think like the theatricals two hours and 24 and the director's cut is three hours so yeah i i guess i don't know what else you would have cut but it's so detrimental to the story to cut out those elements so if you haven't seen it and you're watching it for this podcast if you're going to watch it watch the director's cut i guess is the message here you watch it for the first time. Did it felt like a long film to you? Did do you did you feel the three hour runtime? It felt a little long to me. I've had, and this may just be like the state of mind I was in last night or something, but like I had a little trouble following all of the different characters and the political things towards the middle, like the the middle part of it. I had like a little difficulty understanding at first because there's a lot going on. There's a lot of different like moving parts. And so it slowed down a little bit like in the movie, in the middle part for me. But I really, the first hour and the last hour felt very strong to me. So I think some of that was just like, I have no familiarity with this story, very little familiarity with this era or who any of these people are. So coming in fresh to this movie, it did feel a little bit long to me. 
But I think if I was to watch it again, having a stronger grasp on what was going on, I don't know if it would feel that way. Because it's it's a long story. It's not like it's just a bunch of filler in there. It's just, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces. I think that was really Scott's intention also, to, to really tell this big historical epic instead of just a straightforward story. Right. But I can imagine it feeling a little bit confusing on first watch. My guess is that if you'd watch it a second time, knowing what is to come and knowing how certain things or plot elements play into the story as a whole, it makes much more sense and it's much easier to follow. Yeah. But actually what you said, it's such a big story for me is actually what makes it so fun to revisit because it doesn't feel, at no point does it feel like any scene is just to get from A to B. Like every part of this film to me at least is so compelling in its own right. Like the first section with just Balian and his father training with those knights and him learning about the philosophy of knighthood. And then later on when we first arrive into Jerusalem, that's this part where he gets to learn his legacy basically or at least what his father left behind him and there's this whole sequence where he's just working to build that land towards something better and then of course the real political drama starts and we get into the build-up towards the final climax and the war with uh, Salah Hadin. but for me like all of those things could have been like compelling little stories in their own right and that's at least for me, what makes this film so enjoyable on rewatch. And it's why I've been rewatching it like over and over over the last few years. Yeah. It reminds me of the kind of thing that now would get made as like a four-part miniseries or something. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I mean, there's long movies still being made, but it really almost has like a kind of Game of Thrones type of vibe to it, where it's like there's these wars, but then there's also all these different characters and this kind of like political machination and stuff like that. And it's almost there are almost like three distinct episodes. There's like the journey to Jerusalem. Then you have kind of like this middle section where, you know, it's about his relationship with Sibylla and him rejuvenating the land that he's the baron of now. And then it goes into this last section with the war. And so there's these very like delineated acts almost, and there's a lot of ground to cover. So mm -hmm. yeah, I'll be, I'll be interested to maybe revisit it at some point and see, see what it feels like on a rewatch. It's also interesting that you mention Game of Thrones, because that sort of stuff would be more expected now in television, but it came out in 2005 originally. Yeah. That's tr three years before like the Dark Knight and Iron Man and the whole superhero stuff that came after. So in that sense, to me, it does feel a little bit like one of the last great like classical films, like the David Lean kind of, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, maybe even films like The Great Escape Hole on the other context, but still like one of those classic big stories that's just told on the big screen instead of on television. And this plays into the themes that the film is exploring as well, but it's very biblical in terms of like the way it's dealing with like these huge groups and armies and like the way the plot is structured feels very biblical, which is appropriate for a movie titled Kingdom of Heaven. So yeah, I like what they did with the music there also. They, that really adds a layer of mysticism. Also, when like even in that first scene, when the Crusaders arrived, there's a larger than life mythological feel to it. And then again, when shortly after the Battle of Karak, where Balian is in the middle with the Muslim captain or officer who he befriended earlier and then the whole army of Jerusalem arrives and there's again this biblical religious feeling music and they all carry these great crosses and they're all decorated and it all feels like a little bit 
it's historical, but at the same time, like heightened in some ways. I wouldn't say it glorifies the Crusaders, but it does add a layer of mysticism to it. I don't know that it's glorifying the Crusaders. In a lot of ways, I think it's more of a critique of those things. But the film is concerned with like these ultimate questions. Like it's not just like, oh, here's the, the facts of what happened. Interwoven into this are deep questions about like what it means to be like a moral actor. One of the central conflicts for Balin is he's this man of like no religion acting on his own conscience in the midst of people who are fighting these like huge holy wars in the name of God. And that's kind of like a central tension that runs throughout the film. And I think the film is very interested in like, what is the answer to that question and exploring that idea across the landscape of the story. Yeah, it's like he's searching for a true faith amidst different kind of interpretations manifested through these institutionalized religions. Quite early on, really Scott's really making an effort to do like a sort of both-sidism where he shows the Islamic faith as pretty much being identical to the Christian faith. And there's this one moment at the ports of Messina, I think it was, where Balian sees the Muslims praying and uh, the the Hospitaller, I think it was, or some other character, he's uh, from his party, explains what they are saying. And then Balian's like, oh, that sounds like our prayers. Like he's really suggesting like, oh, we're all like praying to the same God or at least based on the same existential questions. And somehow that leads into violence. And is there a way for us to not have that violence, to have peace or peacefully coexist? And of course, Jerusalem is in that sense the perfect setting as it uh, also explicitly states that there's holy places stacked upon not different holy places and there's like a whole bunch of religions coming together there and they're all doing their own thing basically but at the same time there is a connection between all of them which is what makes it so tragic that these people would be in conflict with each other in the first place yeah this episode is sponsored by Mubi. Mubi is an online hand curated streaming cinema that features incredible films from around the globe. I'm very excited to welcome Mubi as a sponsor for this podcast because they've been a longtime supporter of both of our channels. They have a huge library of international indie art house and classic films. And every day they add a new film with an explanation of why they think you should watch it, which I really appreciate. Right now, the Cannes Film Festival is happening, one of the biggest film festivals in the world. And in honor of Cannes, Mubi is doing a Cannes Takeover series featuring films that have been selected for or won awards at past Cannes Film Festivals. My recommendation this week is Jeff Nichols' Mud, which features Matthew McConaughey. It's a great examination of the American South, masculinity, and generational narratives. You can watch Mud and the rest of the amazing movie library right now when you sign up for an extended 30-day free trial at movie.com slash cinema of meaning. That's mubi.com slash cinema of meaning or click the link in the description for your extended 30-day free trial. You already kind of alluded to this with like talking about Kant's moral philosophy. Maybe I don't remember if you had mentioned that already, but it's kind of juxtaposing like a religion that is fought on a geopolitical scale or that is concerned with like holy sites or like the physical realm versus something that is a personal conscience or like much more internal or personal or individual there's a bunch of lines that kind of address this at one point 
Billing says it's a kingdom of conscience or nothing. And there's kind of this ongoing thread of like separating this idea of like living for the religion or the people who claim to be living for God on either side and the extremism associated with that versus like an individual way of life that is peaceful and accepting and more tolerant and all of these things. And it's kind of showing the the conflict between those two and pitting them against each other. So the conflict of the film is much less about like the conflict of the actual crusades, which was Christian versus Muslim over this one location. And I think the conflict of the film becomes much more about like one approach to a moral life, which is this like extremist, violent, with an emphasis on like actually having political power versus an individual conscious-based kind of approach to that, mm -hmm. which I think is fascinating. Yeah. I don't think I'd mentioned Kant's moral philosophy before. I, I did write it down in the notes because in that first video that I made, that's what I talked about, the moral philosophy of Immanuel Kant, the famous philosopher, which isn't necessarily a religious concept, but basically what it comes down to is that Kant's moral philosophy is very rule-based. He builds his moral philosophy on the basis on a philosophical syllogism, which is like this logical argument where you have a premise, a situation, and then a conclusion. Like, if it rains outside, I'll get wet. The situation is, it's raining. Conclusion is, I'm going to get wet. And so he uses this as the basis to build his moral philosophy in which the premise becomes a maxim, which is basically this rule that you live by. Then you have a situation and then you have a conclusion. And the basic argument is that of those three different elements, you can only really affect the first one because the conclusion is something that follows naturally out of the first two elements. The situation is also something that's beyond your control. Like in the movie, you see there's a lot of things that Balian cannot do anything about and there's just too much stuff going on. He cannot control it. So the only thing that he can control is the maxims that he lives by. What's an example of that here? There's one that Kant actually also uses, and that's a maxim is, um, it's basically never tell a lie. And then basically a situation comes up and one might be tempted to lie, but you won't. Right. And the idea with the maxim is that it's a rule that can be it has two different formulations or interpretations, but one of them is basically sort of like the golden rule. Like if you can have that maxim and apply it to everyone, then it's a good one. Like you cannot, for example, say it's okay to steal sometimes like that, because then if everyone would do that, like we'd all be thieves and there would be no possessions. So in the film, you have these very clear, explicit rules that Balian gets when he's knighted. Like Godfrey knights him and he gives him the maxims basically like be without fear in the face of your enemies, be brave and upright that God may love thee, speak the truth always even if it leads to your death, safeguard the helpless and do no wrong. That's pretty broad. Uh, later on he also says uh, defend the king if the king is no more, protect the people. And that's actually plays into the second interpretation of what for Kant should be like a good maxim to follow and that's that it always treats other people as an end in themselves like you would never use people as a means to an end unless it's sort of like consensual uh, for example i'd use you to host a podcast right for other people and sort of like that 
But what it comes down to is, and that's what I love about this film, is that it presents like a very traditional hero's journey where we have Balian, he gets a call to adventure, at first he refuses, but he goes anyways, and then he goes into this new world where he explores like more about himself, he meets obstacles, and he eventually comes back home. But what I like compared to more classical stories like Star Wars or Harry Potter, where the journey is very internal focused it's very much focused on what does this mean to luke what does this mean to harry in kingdom of heaven the success of his journey and his heroism is really measured by how much he means to the people around him and you see that very early on as he first arrives into jerusalem like when he's given the responsibility of his new lands the first thing he does is try to serve those people and try to improve their lives their livelihood their existence in some way within his power and later on, it becomes even more important, of course, when he has to defend Jerusalem, but he knows explicitly, like, we're only defending the people. So for me, I always saw it as like, he surrenders the city, which seems like a defeat. But according like to Kant's philosophy, this would be a victory because Jerusalem itself as a city is nothing but a collection of like stones, but it's the people within it that make it meaningful. So yeah, that was my original take on the kind of moral philosophy that is at play here. And you can also see how then the villains do the kind of opposite thing. They are really concerned with reaching a certain end. Like they want to manifest Christianity. They don't care about the Muslims in their world. They are more concerned with manifesting the kingdom of heaven that every means to achieve it becomes justified. And that for Kant would be morally wrong and i think the film also tries to allude at various moments that this is not what true religion is and there's also one statement at right at the beginning of the film as balian's brother mutilates his wife's corpse and then he speaks to the bishop of the town who basically says to him like a law can go too far i ask myself would jesus do thusly there's so much done in christendom of which christ would be incapable and that's also plays into that how even within religion there's the distinction between do you live based on religious rules and do you live based on these maxims or is it more important to achieve a certain end and then justify whatever means are necessary along the way right yeah there's also a line from i forget the character's name he's played by um david thulis he says something about like i've seen too much religion in the eyes of murderers he says, I put no stock in religion. By the word religion, I have seen the lunacy of fanatics of every denomination be called the will of God. Holiness is in right action and courage on behalf of those who cannot defend themselves and goodness. And then he says, what God desires is here, he points to the head, and here, he points to the heart. And what you decide to do every day, you will be a good man or not. It's fascinating that the film is exploring these themes and this idea of the kingdom of heaven which it kind of treats as the place, like in some sense, like the kingdom of heaven is thought of as Jerusalem itself, or like that they're fighting over the kingdom of heaven. And Ridley Scott kind of alludes to that in the end with like the title cards. He says something like the kingdom of heaven is still fought over to this day or in conflict to this day or something like that. But the idea of like religion itself, you know, obviously there's the cultural version of Christianity that we see at large in the world. But my understanding, obviously there's all these different debates and, and conflict about this, but my understanding of a lot of what I think Christ as a figure was, is someone who is a deconstruction of those kinds of like religious structures. 
that we see in this film. So it's interesting that Baleen is presented as this like anti-religious figure, but then there's also almost this connection to Christ that I think is made. Something Christ says in the Gospel of Luke that says the Pharisees who are like the religious structure at the time, the primary like dogmatic religious structure, ask him, when is the kingdom of God, which is synonymous with the kingdom of heaven, when is the kingdom of heaven coming? And he says to them, the kingdom does not come as something one observes, nor will persons say, look, here it is, or there it is, for look, the kingdom of heaven is within you. And so like that idea biblically, or that idea in the Bible is connected in this script to that idea of like, oh, the kingdom, you know, what God wants is in here, in your head, in your heart, that same conflict between like a fundamental religious structure and a more individual, like moral imperative is I think present in like the new Testament or the story of Christ as well. So I think that plays into like the biblical feeling of this film. It's not just like a biblical epic in the sense of the kind of story it's telling, but like the same kinds of conflicts between like these larger sociopolitical religious structures and like individual conscience is like a biblical theme as well. And that is relevant to like the idea of Kant's moral philosophy as well, which is like much more the golden rule or like love your neighbor as yourself can kind of be seen as as an example of that kind of thing. One specific example to tie it into the film of this, going back to Kant's moral philosophy, is there's a very specific moment where the guy is captured. The main villain, you mean? Yes, the wife of Sybil. He's imprisoned and Baleen is presented with this like choice, like, oh, the king of Jerusalem says you can marry Sybil, take over the army, and Guy will be executed. And even though that seems like the option, I think Sybil even says it to him, like, do a little wrong now to do good later. I don't remember. He said, there's going to be a time where you wished you had done a little evil to get a greater good, something along those lines. Yeah. Yes. And so that's this conflict between a more utilitarian mm -hmm. or maybe consequentialist view of morality that we're seeing there, or at least one that's seeing like using a human as an end, you know, like it's okay to allow these knights and going to be executed on my behalf because it's going to mm -hmm. lead to all this good. That's using a human as a means. Yeah. Right. And instead he says, I'm going to hold to this maxim of essentially nonviolence, except in self-defense or in defense of the innocent. And I'm going to use that maxim as the principle I'm going to act on to decide what is right and wrong in this scenario. What do you think about that philosophy like generally? Or just the idea of living by this kind of moral absolutism? I don't know. I struggle with that. I think there's always a tension between, you know, living by a type of maxim or of virtue ethics or something like that. Like, these are the rules I'm going to live by and having a more consequentialist perspective. I don't know what the right answer is. I think it's important to try to think about what the long-term consequences of your actions are, especially when they may be detrimental, when there might be like, long-term downsides to an action that you have now. But I do think that like the world is also really complicated and there's a lot of scenarios where we can't know what the outcome is going to be or we can't see every side of something. And having this maxim of like, this is what I think would be right for all people 
in this situation. Like this is a principle that you could apply universally and trying to live by that can really simplify things and allow you to act in scenarios where you don't have enough information to try to like make a judgment about what's going to happen in the future or what the consequences might be. I think that's an interesting position to hold because there's a degree of faith. I don't mean that in a religious sense, but just in like a, there's an act of faith involved, I think, with adhering to a maxim like that, because as much as you can try to reason it out, at a certain point, you're saying like, this is the maxim worth living by. And I'm going to like, take it on some degree of faith that that's the case that like, I'll make a decision, even if it has potentially bad consequences, I'm prioritizing this principle. In that scenario, he's prioritizing his principle of nonviolence over the fact that it might cause some immediate near future conflict that could be avoided. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's the question. I think it's yeah. a struggle. Uh, I don't have the answer. <laughs> that's what makes uh, philosophy so complicated and everlasting. Yeah. I would say overall in my life, that's the style of moral thinking that appeals to me the most. Mm -hmm. That's probably the way I try to live my life is like, what are the principles that I can live by that will guide how I think about what is right and wrong in a more universal sense? Yeah, I definitely feel there's always a strong appeal towards characters that have these kind of strong moral positions. Think of like A Hidden Life, Hacks Are Rich, Aragorn in The Lord of the Rings to a lesser extent, and maybe Batman or Captain America, those kind of characters. And myself, I've definitely been like very inspired by this kind of philosophy, especially because I th there's just something so powerful about drawing a line in the sand and just making your stand. I think that's what I love about this film too, is when at one point Balian has a conversation with the king of Jerusalem and he The king says to Balian, like, none of us know our end, really, he says, or what hand will guide us there, which again plays into what Khan says about not being able to control our lives. He says, a king may move a man, a father may claim a son, but that man can also move himself, and only then does that man truly begin his own game. Remember that howsoever you are played, or by whom, your soul is in your keeping alone. Even though those who presume to play you be kings or men of power, when you stand before God, you cannot say, but I was told by others to do thus, or that virtue was not convenient at the time. This will not suffice. It does suggest a sort of an ultimate kind of freedom that you have as an individual to just manifest whatever value or belief that you have, and that there's basically no force on earth that can move you away from it if you so choose and that's something of course that you see in a hidden life very effectively yeah obviously that's something that's appealed to me a lot over the last few years but i also struggle to sometimes fit it into the context of modern society because let's say i do have the maxim or the rule that i don't want to cause any unnecessary suffering i don't want to hurt people or living beings but then at the same time like whenever you go to the grocery store there's a good chance you're gonna buy some violence as we talked about last week with the worst person in the world the avocados exactly there's people in chile who don't have water because of the avocados yeah so, so at the same time i do want to have sympathy for being a fallible person in a world where you cannot separate yourself in a protective bubble where you can say okay i'm 
virtuous in my own little space and everything else I'm gonna ignore or push away because in real life you don't always have the real option to be moral in that kind of absolutist way unless you want to reject like 90% of the products you're consuming right now yeah. like the bananas or chocolate bars that have been produced by literal slaves or like child labor that sort of stuff like there's a lot of evil going on in the world that we kind of casually participate in and so I kind of go back and forth between wanting to be aware of those nuances and those complexities and also just being a person who tries to keep his sanity in a world where everything seems to be connected to some kind of evil right yes yeah, yeah. while at the same time also not resorting to complete relativism or even just apathy of like oh well you know if everything i do is tainted in some way like i might as well not care exactly and i feel like that's where we're heading now like oh everything is bad like if your favorite product or company is revealed to have like exploited animals or people like it's not really a surprise like these days and so I do worry, like, at some point we're going to have to make that stand. Like, at some point, are we going to be able to say, like, to here and, like, no further? That's my kind of struggle. Like, at the same time, it's you want to be mindful of, like, the reality of being a conscious being in a world where you're inherently connected to other kinds of interactions or all kinds of interactions that have moral implications that you cannot separate yourself from. So, in that sense, to what extent is it hubris to think that you can isolate yourself from the evil in the world like that's Balian's brother at the beginning he had a point when he said like you see yourself without sin and that is a sin like when you see yourself as being capable of isolating yourself from evil to what extent are you just ignoring the ways that you are but are not seeing or like not willing to see like how many people who live by these strong kind of rules really do so as an excuse to not really reflect on or investigate the relations that they have like even with the consumption part, but other aspects of life too, like in the ways that they are doing evil still, but just don't want to confront it because they, in their head, they are completely virtuous. They don't have to examine their beliefs. That for me makes it a little bit more complicated than it was when I first saw this film as a teenager, but I tend to go back and forth. And like you, there's obviously no real answer to it. That's why philosophy still hasn't been figured out like 2,000 years <laughs> yeah. later. <laughs> I mean, my perspective on the character in this film, I think there's a degree of like humility that comes with it. I don't know that he necessarily sees himself as this perfect knight or someone without sin. That's like a label I think other people are trying to apply to him because he is holding fast to these principles that run counter to the like dominant religious structure or assumptions. But he's constantly saying like, oh, I've lost my religion. I don't know God. God hasn't spoken to me. I don't necessarily get the sense that he sees himself as acting from a place of pure goodness. Yeah, he's definitely not self-confident or not as self-confident as I think others see him. I think, as you said, like he's struggling to find something so he holds on to what he knows to be good. Yeah. He's definitely not like cocky about it. And that's what I like as well. But yeah. I think that's the tricky part with trying to live this way or trying to live a good life is always this sense of like, how do I aspire towards being better without falling into this trap of thinking I'm good, of thinking that 
you know, I'm infallible or that I've crossed over some line, you know, like, oh, now I hold these principles and I hold them perfectly. I really like that it's very messy with this character. Like the first big action that we see him take is killing this guy and he doesn't do it in self-defense. It feels to some degree we understand why he did, at least in the director's cut, because this priest has been kind of tormenting him and, and stole from his wife and all this stuff. But that act, unlike the one later where he like spares the life of the Muslim, uh, I forget his name. But unlike that, when he kills the priest, he's not doing so in self-defense. It's not like the priest is about to kill him or something. So it is an act that runs counter to his principles. And so I, li I like that we see him, despite the fact that he's trying to live by these maxims, we see him in this false state from the beginning. I think that's a good reflection of how messy and difficult this kind of philosophy or way of trying to live is. Yeah, I, I didn't see it so much that he already lived by those principles in the beginning. I think that he killed his brother or the priest is that it's very much what maybe wanted him to catalyze that. Yeah, to, yeah. because that's he knows what leads him to sin. So he wants to embrace like certain rules that prevent him from going back to that space and going to hell. Basically, that's, of course, in the context of, of the movie, what the characters mostly fear, like the salvation of their soul or not. And there's one other thing that I also thought was really interesting when I rewatched the film last night, which I hadn't really thought about that much before, is when you apply this whole moral philosophy to Sibylla and because she at one point she has the son and her son turns out to be a leper like the king of Jerusalem so she knows he's going to suffer a lot he's going to die and it's implied that he at some point will probably commit suicide so instead she decides to kill her son because she doesn't want him to go to hell so she will go to hell instead so there's an another layer of that moral complexity where she tries to protect the moral capacity of someone else by sacrificing hers in a way right which i think at first it seemed to me like maybe that's just a means to an end kind of situation but it does feel like a little bit more nuanced than that and there was just an interesting note that i hadn't thought of before like if goodness is staying true to your maxims what is the sort of moral judgment when you sacrifice yours so that others can preserve theirs right that's not an easy question to answer. Yeah, because it's implied also a little bit in the code of conduct for knighthood where you protect the innocent. So basically you do violence on behalf of someone else. So all those innocents and the helpless, they can keep their hands clean, so to say, whereas the knights, they have to do like the killing. They have to some extent do violence that might not be permissible under their own guides and rules. Right, right. Because you see it too when Balian first meets up with his father and he's like, I have done murder and then Liam Neeson, his father, just casually goes like, oh, haven't we all? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've all, you know, we've all, once or twice is fine. Yeah. Yeah, as long as you don't make a habit out of it, it's, we'll, we'll let it slide. Mm -hmm. How do you think that Balin's sense of moral obligation fits into his ultimate denial of position? There's also a line where he says to Sybil, like, decide not to be a queen and I will come to you. One of the things I found most fascinating about the movie is the turn it takes in the third act of like, you're on this kind of hero's journey trajectory where it's like, oh, there's a call and he kind of follows this and he's selected out and made to be special. And he's the one who is able to defend Jerusalem. The culmination of that is surrender. 
and mm -hmm. giving up his position and going back to being a blacksmith and sort of becoming no one again. And he revokes that. He gives that all up. Do you think that fits into how he's living by, you know, these maxims or this set of principles? The surrender of Jerusalem, yes. We talked about how it wasn't about like protecting Jerusalem in itself, in its physical form, but in the, the people that live within it. So in, I do think it's made explicit in the film that that's what he sets out to do. That's like the victory that's achievable. There's at no point that they were really like considering, oh, maybe we can win this. Like maybe we can fight off right. the Muslims. He knows it's it's a last battle from the start and all they can do is hold out long enough so they can save the people who cannot defend themselves in the city. So in that part, yes, it fits into the, I think in the larger moral philosophy that we've been discussing. But as to the social positions that they hold, I haven't really thought about that. I think with Sybil, it was more that her being queen was more a symbol for her being in that political game where everything is a means to an end. I'm not sure if he was literally suggesting like give up your title and everything is fine, but it's more like what that title represented for her. And as for himself, there's one thing about the whole geopolitical conflict that wasn't that obvious as to me is like how well all the cities are connected with each other. Like does Salahadin taking Jerusalem mean that Balian also loses Ibelin and does it mean that like Karak is also lost and Sibylla also mentions at the end she's still queen of Acre and a number of other cities so it's not just that there's a bit of uh, confusion about what is connected to what and what is lost what is still theirs but at the very least at the end the, the king of England comes and he's like I'm looking for the baron yeah he was looking for the protector of Jerusalem I think yeah yes and he says I'm the blacksmith mm -hmm. you know so there's kind of like a denial there of like you know not a lie but he doesn't speak the truth that's <laughs> <laughs> but it's also like there's a humility in that like he's not accepting himself as this hero over the course of these events like he was just a man at a certain time and place who did certain things like there's a rejection of I think himself as hero and identity which i think is interesting i guess when you have these rules that you live by when you have this kantian philosophy then it doesn't the situation is irrelevant you always are like living in your own maxim so he doesn't identify himself with the situation like to him no matter if he was like in Ibelin building wells and getting water and building irrigation or if he was like defending the entire city of Jerusalem or being a blacksmith like he's always living by the same code of conduct and so the situation might change depending on where he is or what he's doing but like that's so that's not what is relevant to him like he's it's it's what's inside there's also this point, one little bit where Sibylla, during the battle for Jerusalem, she becomes a nurse of some kinds, like she's helping the wounded soldiers somewhere in the dungeons, I think. And she meets up with one of the soldiers who's also at the very beginning. It's not really relevant, but they have a short conversation where Sibylla says, we are what we do, which I'm not sure how it fits into what I was just saying. Like you can either say, see it as we are whatever we are doing in the very moment or like we are whatever well, we yeah in that scene there's a rejection of station as well like she's cut her hair she's kind of pretending to be not the queen and he recognizes her as the queen but then says you know we are what we do i think that fits into this conflict of individual moral burden versus this like religious structure where like the king's positions are handed down by god essentially like in the worldview of that they're living within 
at the same time as they're rejecting the religious worldview of the crusades of being like morality is about like holding this city and having this place belong to us like that is how we establish the kingdom of god is we hold jerusalem and we have that that's the the christian worldview that's the muslim worldview that they have is like we forward the kingdom of god by fighting and establishing political territory and also by having like a christian king and queen and like these positions and these titles a rejection of that is kind of in a sense like synonymous with a rejection of like finding the goodness in that larger socio-religious structure and instead being like i can be just as good as the blacksmith as i can as the baron of eberlin in a sense yeah for me that moment also communicated that sibylla was on her way of becoming more like Balian, or at least rejecting her queen, like the symbolic being of the queen, and just becoming like someone who lives more in that moment and lives, tries to do good in whatever situation she's presented with. One other thing I was thinking about is what that kind of philosophy does with you psychologically. I love that scene where just before the Battle of Jerusalem, Balian asks every man capable of bearing arms to kneel, and he gives them the same rules of uh, that he got from his father and then he tells them all to rise knight like he basically he knights them and then there's this skeptical kind of selfish priest or bishop that's been like bothering him the whole time and he's like kind of snarky like or oh, does making a man a knight make him a better fighter to which Balian is like when everyone is watching him like waiting for the answer and he's just like yes yeah yeah <laughs> and you see them like fill up with confidence and I like the idea that something so simple, like that kind of affirmation, like the kind of embracing of a certain rules or like a code or like those maxims that can encourage people to actually do better or be better. So there's value in speaking it out and performing that kind of a ritual like that to bring people over the threshold into like a more virtuous life that also feels more fulfilling to them in the end, just on a personal level, I think. Yeah, yeah. You like that idea, but do you think it's flawed on some level? You know, is that like a nice fantasy to imagine that like yeah, living it, by this? It, the ritual itself, it's like an act of initiation. I think you see it with like student associations or like other forms of organized groups that have initiations to bring people in. It's a bit of like a psychological placebo effect maybe, but human beings are still to some extent vulnerable to it in in a good way. Like they can genuinely find meaning or like inspiration in some form of initiation, especially when it's uh, framed as one that brings people into a more virtuous life or virtuous way of living. Of course, the whole philosophy itself runs into the same issues that we've talked about before, but I do think society would be slightly better if we can imagine better ways to initiate people into some kind of virtue or like code of conduct that's slightly more explicit than the kind we have now, which is not really much non-existent, especially in our more like secular society where we don't really have strong, explicit rituals to bring people into a certain way of life or way of thinking or yeah, yeah that sort of stuff. I mean, allegedly that's what, you know, religion would purport to do, but then the issues with religion are also portrayed in this film where like religion, I think in its best form is a formalized version of that of saying like okay we're going to create a ritual to usher people into a way of living virtuously but then it becomes corrupted and you end up 
you know, it gets bigger and bigger and entangled with political structure and all these other things and it becomes corrupted and then you have people forsaking virtue altogether to go slaughter each other in a distant land fighting over some territory or something. That's the constant struggle of humanity is like, how do we find that place or that that balance or that middle ground of like formalizing things or ritualizing things, but not letting the ritual itself displace the reason for why we have the ritual in the first place. Yeah, I've often wondered if we could have like religion without a religion. Like in my country, the Netherlands, it's pretty secular, like by and large. But what you see is that religion did used to have this space in people's lives that would be mostly concerned with like existentialism and virtue and moralism and politics would be just concerned with like governing and rules and laws and uh, then you have maybe the family that's concerned with like the family itself which is surviving working getting by day to day and now when you basically cut out that religious part as the world grows more secular like I do feel it leaves a bit of a vacuum where you used to have this communal experience of discussing virtue and contemplating like right ways of living or wrong ways of living for that matter. I wonder if there's some kind of way to push the reset button, I guess. And have that without all the downsides yeah. to formal religious structure. Go back to knighting people. <laughs> <laughs> and have Liam Neeson do it. <laughs> That's maybe the struggle of modernity is like, how do we in a post death of God, as Nietzsche would say, world construct meaning or find meaning or to what extent can we build up these things? What is it? What does it mean? Even within this film, it's it's promoting this idea of like a self-driven moral conscience, which I think is like a great idea on some level. But then like that is an idea that in some sense is antithetical to kind of what you're describing, which is like a more community-oriented, participatory-like way of thinking about these Mm -hmm. things. But at the same time, like Balian was initiated into the night, the little club that his father, and he definitely had like a community of knights that followed him. He had the the priest, he was the, the hospitaler who he befriended. And so there was a bit of a small world within the world or like a little group of people that were trying to do some good with each other and what they were given. But in the end, it does remain a rather individualistic concept where the in the end, the morality of the individual or the moral conscience of the individual is the thing that takes center place. But yeah, there's no easy answer. No. <laughs> Unfortunately, we won't solve the uh, some of the largest philosophical questions of the last couple yeah. of centuries uh, in this podcast despite our attempts, but here we are. I think, to your point, movies as narratives that sometimes delve into these subjects can provide a great space for having some of those discussions that there might not otherwise be a context for. It might be hard to sit down and be like, let's get people interested in consequentialism versus like virtue ethics or something like that. But when you can frame it around a narrative that people are interested in or a story, it kind of opens up this door to discussing all kinds of things that we wouldn't otherwise, which I think is part of why I imagine you're interested in film. I think that's that's part of both of our attraction to to this subject matter. Yeah, exactly. It's also what attracted me to this movie specifically, because 
I like how Kingdom of Heaven, it raises all these questions, it brings everything into discussion, but it doesn't offer a strong resolution at the end. It doesn't give you a, this is what you should do, or this is the answer. It leaves that open-ended. I do think Ridley Scott seems to prefer like Balian's philosophy, or at least in the context of this movie, but he also shows that it's not without implications and it does come with consequences and it's not an easy path to take and it's somewhat questionable if it is even like the right one to begin with. Although I'm not sure if I mentioned that, but I do like how in the director's cut, the hospitaler who talks to Balian about holiness is in right action and that the kingdom of God is in the, the head and in the heart. In the director's cut, at least, there's an additional scene where he's more presented as almost like an angelic figure. Like there's that scene after Balian defeats those Templars where he's unconscious in the desert and then the hospitaler comes and he sort of puts his finger on his like head and then suddenly Balian wakes up as if he's like resurrected and then they discuss religion for a little bit and then the hospitaler walks off and then Balian is distracted by the bush that's on fire and then he looks back and then the hospitaler is like disappeared and it's like this clear moment of like mystery like has he (laughs) just like vanished into thin air or... There's this subtle suggestion that he is a literal messenger of God in some sense, and which would sort of imply that he would bring the right answers down to us mortals. But yeah, I think it's more like a little note to think about than something to take like super serious. But yeah. Pretty sure Ridley Scott identifies as an atheist, but he engages with these stories Mm -hmm. and really engages with the worldview of the characters within the stories. He's kind of casting Balian as kind of this anti-religious figure, but then there's this sense within the film, as you're describing, that his anti-religion is really sort of a form of true religion. Like maybe in that he's finding some kind of actual connection with God in a mm-hmm. way that like the other people aren't or something. There's a strong like critique of religion and certain elements of religion in the film, but it also isn't stepping all the way back from that worldview like it presents this very complicated world which also just makes sense from the perspective of a historical drama because it makes it not anachronistic or whatever Mm -hmm. i do think there's a bit of like modern revisionism going on with sure as to how it portrays philosophies which probably wouldn't be as nuanced at that time as they are presented here but for me it's just like whenever such issues come up i'm usually like pretty lenient about and uh, not sacrificing like the power of the story for the sake of being accurate to some like relatively ancient period in history. I think if people are really interested in that, they'll seek it out in uh, through books or like documentaries and right. uh, so that this story can just be a story. But yeah, it's always interesting to me watching something like this because I'm like, I see a lot of those things reflected in uh, personally in like the New Testament, which has been around for a long time. So theoretically, it's like, oh, so a lot of these ideas would be there, like I already mentioned with Christ saying, like, the kingdom of God is within you. But then it's like, is that what's there in the New Testament? Or am I reading that perspective into it through the lens of like Kantian philosophy or things that have come since that? And then, you know, it's impossible not to see, you know, these older things through that lens. I don't know. It's hard to tell. But I find it fascinating how oftentimes a lot of philosophy even that feels very modern goes back much much further than than i imagine into history which is part of the fun of philosophy 
Yeah, that's the other side of it, that it's easy to fall into that trap of thinking that just because we have certain beliefs now that they are distinctively modern instead of that maybe they've been around for a long time, except maybe in slightly different interpretations or expressions or uh, ways that we've forgotten and since remembered or like, yeah, it's, it's definitely not like a certainty. I think that just because we have beliefs now is that they beliefs were not there somewhere in the past. Like, for example, Stoicism is also a philosophy that's connected to Kant's moral philosophy in the sense that it's really focused on the individual and what you can control within your world and within your state of mind or like your attitude. And so a lot of those ideas, they have been around in some form or another for like much longer than we can probably imagine. But yeah. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure to check us out on our creator-owned streaming service, Nebula, where you can listen to all of our episodes early and without any ads. Right now, the best way to get access to Nebula is by signing up for CuriosityStream, which comes with a free Nebula subscription. To learn more about that, you can follow the link in the show notes, and we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to Cinema of Meaning. If you enjoyed our discussion, feel free to listen to our other episodes right here on Nebula. You can also check out our video essays here on Nebula. That's Thomas Flight and Like Stories of Old, and we'll see you again next time.